Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas, or am I? I don't know. You're dressed like Julie Douglas, so you must be Julie Douglas. I do have my Julie Douglas yeah. uniform on today. It's true. Describe the, the Julie Douglas uniform. <laughs> well, uh, it's pretty boring, actually. It's usually like monochrome. You know, I've got some dark jeans on with a dark top yeah. and some dark shoes. Kind of like a, like a German sensibility, I think. Hmm, okay, I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah, it's a little austere. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Robert Lamb? What sort of... Uh, what sort of role are you taking on here with your clothes? Well, I tend to favor, of course, as anyone has noticed from the videos that we put out, since you, you may wonder, wow, Robert Lamb seems to have like three things that he wears. And this is true. I tend to gravitate around uh, blue jeans, mm-hmm. uh, a T-shirt of some kind, and then a hoodie of some kind. Of which, uh, And then these things will gradually wear out and I'll get replacements. And so it, at any given point, I'll have like two or three uh, versions of the same shirt or the same hoodie. It's kind of the pattern I've been in. But I love the hoodie because it, uh, it, my thing with it is that on one level, it feels kind of monastic. You know, I mm-hmm. kind of feel like I'm uh, in the name of the rose. And uh, there, therefore, when I come into work and I sit down at my desk and I get out some books and pull up some studies on the on the laptop, I can uh, I can sync up my uh, hoodie here, and I, I feel kind of like I'm uh, I'm I'm a monk engaged in serious um, focused study. And uh, and then there's also the fact that I can uh, I can kind of zip up the hoodie, mm-hmm. and it, uh, it's like it hugs me, and I get this like tight feeling like I'm uh, I'm tightly contained and therefore maybe even more focused on what I'm working on. You know, when you say it's like your study hoodie, I always think about Natalie from The Facts of Life. Yeah. She had like a special outfit that she would wear, including a hoodie, I believe, yeah. that she studied. So, yeah, I mean, it's true that you, you put on certain clothes to feel a certain way, to mm-hmm. act a certain way, and that is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to zone in on this, but we're also going to talk about something called embodied cognition, which is this idea that there's lots of stuff that influences the way that we behave, the way that our mind processes information. Yeah, it's one of these areas where, on the surface of things, we all know that the way you dress changes the way you carry yourself, the way you feel about yourself. Uh, but when you actually look at it and you examine it and you take it out and you you know, take some distance on it and sort of move the, the concept around in your hand a little bit, you realize how strange and wonderful it really is. It is. And um, embodied cognition and clothed cognition, what we're talking about today, these are two fairly new fields of thought in terms of how humans behave. Uh, behavioral psychology is something that has been, you know, particularly in the 70s, a very big field of study. Mm-hmm. And that's a theory of learning based upon the idea that all behaviors are acquired through conditioning. Right. Um, cognitive psychology, which has probably been the, more of the reigning field as of late, and this is concerned with internal mental states as well as how people acquire, process, and store information. And that also delves into neuroscience and linguistics in order to explain human behavior. Yeah, and the whole thing kind of treads the... The, the mind-body problem as well a little bit when we talk about, well, what am I? Am I brain? Am I body? Uh, and what is this interplay between mind and body? And, and how does it all factor into who and what I am? Well, that's what I, I like about embodied cognition. Again, this this newer field because it does take into account this idea of acquired behaviors or behaviors that are um, pretty much moved along by how we process information. But it also has this idea of like, what if we are 
all just a bunch of paper dolls performing the role of whatever paper outfit we stick on for that day. Now, that's that's pretty reductionist, and there's more to it than that, mm-hmm. of course. But it's more of this idea of we're all walking around in these physical cages we put over ourselves and all the trappings that go along with it. And this does inform our mental states and uh, how we operate in the world. Now, one of the concepts we're dealing here, here with here is positive contagion. Uh, and this refers to the belief of a transference of beneficial properties between animate persons and objects to previously neutral objects. Now, we've talked about this concept a bit in the past in mm-hmm. reference to uh, lucky charms, magical objects. Yeah. Uh, the idea that, uh, that, that an object that belonged to a person that is now dead is somehow on, on varying levels, either on an overt level, like you can look at a watch and be like, the spirit of my father is in this watch, or it may be a very sort of almost subconscious thing where you end up aspiring a lot of meaning to the watch, even if you don't actually believe it has some sort of magical power to it or some sort of actual spiritual resonance. Yeah, but that does kind of, there's a bit of a voodoo-ness yes, about it, right? totally. Mm-hmm. That, that you feel. Um, a good example of this is the study Putting Like a Pro, the Role of Positive Contagion in Golf Performance and Perception. And in that study, uh, what was found is that people who believe that they were using the professional golfer's putter perceive the size of golf holes <laughs> to be larger than they actually were and they had a better performance, and they, they sunk more putts because they thought they were harnessing this magic of, of the pros' um, equipment. Yeah, they had the professional equipment, and then therefore, and, and I love how the study boils down to the fact that they actually saw the hole as bigger. It wasn't; it's not just a matter of oh, well, they had better equipment, and then they they were a little you know boosted up ego wise, and they performed a little better. They were a little more confident, but no, they actually saw the hole as bigger. Um, and, and, and again, this is one of those studies that really drives home something that I think we already know. You you already hear a lot of people say, well, you know, if you want to be a professional about something, you know, make sure you have the right equipment because that's going to make the difference and you're going to feel more confident in your abilities if you actually buy confident tools. Right. You're going to feel prepared yeah. and ready to take the task on. And what I like about that uh, positive contagion is it, it's a nice little entryway into this idea of embodied cognition. Uh, because these embodiment theories are trying to understand the mind as a set of physical processes derived throughout the brain and the body of a human ultimately serving his or her actions in the physical world. That study also reminds me of a little bit of uh, Holy Scripture I'm going to read here for you. Bring it on. When the star belly children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play ball if your bellies had stars, and the plain belly children had none upon theirs. That was one of my favorite books as yes, a child. Yes, Star Belly Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. And that or is, Sneetches, rather. is a great example of how people can sometimes behave depending on how they're branded yeah. or how they brand themselves. Are they branded with the star or are they branded without the star? And, and it is. That's a fabulous uh, fabulous children's book that really boils down a lot of the ridiculousness of, uh, of, of human culture and how we work. Uh, but you can easily apply it to... Uh, to some of the topics we're discussing here today. Yeah, um, and, and we'll talk more about that when we get to enclosed cognition, but I wanted to point out something called the Embodiment Lab at Barnard College at Columbia University. And uh, what they say is that in the lab, they explore hypotheses that flow from the assumption that the mind exists to serve the body. 
And it says several implications of this philosophical stance that have guided our research are, one, that it is not only true that the mind can influence the body, but the body can influence the mind. Two, when we think or feel, our mental representations will be directly related to perception and action. Mm-hmm. And three, that setting the perceptual and motor functions of various thoughts, feelings, and brain states can help us to understand why, when, and how they come about. Okay. So that's all good and well. That's, that's sort of the philosophical basis of this. But let's put some rubber to the road here. What we're talking about are these studies that have to do with, um, this is the classic one, uh, let's say a warm cup of coffee versus an iced uh, coffee and how it might actually make someone think uh, their cognitive process. And we've brought this up before, but I wanted to bring this up again. Um, this is this idea of warm drink, warm feelings. Yale psychologists Williams and Barg found that when they let participants hold this warm cup, the participants judged others to be more sociable. Hmm. And this is a characteristic of personality dimension warm, right? So further, when, when participants uh, briefly had a warm pack on their necks, they themselves became more generous and other uh, acts of kindness that they studied in that. but Which is why you should always bring a cup of coffee to someone if you're about to ask them something difficult, right? Yeah, and, and maybe even if you're going into a job interview, right? Yeah, bring in some coffee, bring in, a, bring in a warm pack to put on your, your, <laughs> your future boss's neck. That won't be creepy at all. No, no. You'll get the job. Yeah, yeah another uh, really interesting uh, aspect of this is the hand-washing uh, zone. Now, uh, there's an excellent book on on this uh, title, Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity by Virginia Smith that I recommend to uh, to everyone. I think I may have um, touted it here uh, on the podcast before. But uh, one of the core arguments in this book is that, um, not even an argument, it's just an analysis, that throughout human history we have this idea of hygiene and then we have these other ideas of spiritual purity, moral purity, um, pure thoughts, uh, etc., and these become intertwined mm-hmm. as uh, as we as we evolve and as human culture builds up, you know, like detritus, and uh, until we really have difficulty separating one idea from the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, the sort of like positive contagion or actually a, a negative contagion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like there are plenty of examples of something that has been, uh, for instance, uh, at our house, we were out of uh, out of tin foil, so I had to cover the cat's wet food with um, a little piece of cellophane, mm-hmm. and then I uh, I secured the cellophane around it with one of my wife's uh, hair ties, and uh, and so the <laughs> hair tie was not touching cat food at all, but I, I had to I realized that in doing this I, I might not be actually defiling the hair tie. It wasn't it wasn't. Uh, uh, made impure in any kind of physical sense, mm-hmm. but there was a, a a spiritual contamination of it by being that close to ground up animal parts, and therefore could never be used on hair. Again. I was about to say, I, I totally get that because I don't even like a hairbrush to be on my kitchen countertop. Mm-hmm. It kind of freaks me out. Yeah, and we talk about this in terms of uh, of water purification. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's just everything that that needs to be purified for human consumption has to be purified in the real, but also in the imagined realm of uh, of purity. Well, um, not only does does this purity um, come into play when you think about hand washing, but there's something called the clean slate effect. And Spike W. S. Lee and Norbert Schwartz of the University of Michigan asked subjects to rank top 10 CDs they'd like to own from a list of 30. And then they chose to keep either their fifth or their sixth ranked disc. Okay, so this is where they introduce, like, oh, which one should I have? Okay, Because you're not not really touching those top picks. How many did they have to pick? 30? 
No, out of 30, they had to oh. be their top 10, top but 10, then they okay. could keep their fifth or sixth. Okay. Okay, so therein lies the problem here, because it's not the bottom of the 10, it's not the top pick, right? So presumably there's some sort of like oh consternation involved with this. Yeah. So what they had them do is they, they had the subjects evaluate some hand soap. Some just stared at it while others used it, okay? And now the subjects who didn't use the soap ranked their chosen CD about two places higher than the one they didn't pick. So they they elevated it. And and this is the cognitive distance that some of us sometimes have when we're trying to make decisions, right? Just thinking about the soap, not even even using just the idea of soap. The soap is a symbol working on the human mind. Exactly. So um, so those who didn't get to wash their hands, basically, they, they increased their value on their chosen option. And again, that's the cognitive dissonance. You're going to double down in the face of adversity. And... Those who wash their hands, the relative rankings of the two CDs remained about the same, and their angst, uh, they say, according to this, was erased. Okay, now, they did this again with jam. They had, uh, the participants had to choose between two different jams. There always seems to be jams in yeah, these kind of studies. I think we, we've either hit studies. on this jam study or another jam study before. Okay, so instead of washing their hands, we're talking about hand wipes. Considering the hand wipes or using the hand wipes. And again, uh, those people who use the hand wipes, they came back and they had a much more um, pragmatic perspective about the jam. They didn't overrate their experiences with the jams, whereas those people who didn't get to wash their hands didn't have that clean slate effect and, and, and kind of be able to wash away their consternation. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the whole idea of like taking a shower to cleanse the soul as well as the, the body. That fresh light effect where you're like, all right, I'm all new. I'm good. Well, have you ever done that before when you're trying to turn something around in your mind, trying to get another perspective on it? And you're like, you know what? Nothing's working here. I, I'm, I'm at a stop. I'm just going to take a shower. Yeah. And lo and behold, you, you come out on the other side of that shower with new ideas or a new perspective. Yeah. I think I do some of my best thinking uh, in the shower in the morning. That's true. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm assuming you, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I, like, sometimes I take too long. I like, because I'm just standing there, hot water hitting me in the face, ideas are running, and it's a good time. And your wife is like, hey, man, <laughs> you're running up the bill. Well, you know, there's also something to be said, because it's, uh, it's before I have the coffee. And we've talked about, uh, you know, in the past about how the coffee focuses the mind, mm-hmm. but it cuts down on that unhinged, random thinking that's a hallmark of creativity. So I'm having the shower before I t- have my coffee. So that would that's also like I'm, I'm at my freshest then, and I also haven't taken any coffee to rein in the wild stallions of my imagination. I don't know why they're stallions. They're more no, they're really probably more like muskrats, the wild muskrats of my. I think I preferred stallions. Stallions is a little overdoing it. Even I'm going to be realistic about my creative abilities. I know, but it's got a nice, like, 70s shiny yeah. sheen to it. Um, and mural. All right, so let's stop talking about stallions and showers. <laughs> um, let's get to clipboards, because yes. I love clipboards, and I think at every job I've ever had, I have kiddingly walked around with a clipboard to pretend like I was doing something. It makes you, really does make you feel like you're doing something. I, I still have my clipboard from when I was in newspapers here, and I just use it for mundane purposes now, like holding papers onto a board. But back then, I remembered it was like it was almost like a scepter. Like if I had the clipboard, I felt like <laughs> yes, I am in control because I have this thing, and there's there are papers on it and everything. 
Well, papers on it and everything turns out to be important, uh, but more important in some of these studies is the actual weight of the thing itself. Yes. And it turns out that that weight is really important and that people will think about their own self-importance and gauge other aspects of the world in conjunction with this weight. Yeah, we were looking at a study where people holding a clipboard that was weighted so as to be heavier overestimated the value of foreign currencies. Uh, by ind- indicating how many euros they believe they would need to pay exchange currencies. Yeah, and now they they were given these clipboards, the participants in the study, and they were told to fill things out. Okay, mm-hmm. so they had an activity. They weren't just holding an empty Yeah, they weren't like, clipboard. hold this and tell me what you think about the euros. No. Yeah, and they had no idea whether or not theirs was heavier or lighter than, than other people in the study. Um, and this was, uh, by the way, published in Psychological Science. Dr. Jossman and his colleagues, Daniel Lakins and Thomas W. Schubert, explored this idea about the body conflating weight and importance. And they were also asked to consider uh, different countries and their leadership. And then again, those people who had heavier clipboards, and they really deliberated a lot more than the people who had lighter clipboards, and they thought that their opinion was more sought out than their their light clipboard counterparts. Wow. So, you know, in our, in our previous episode, we talked about symbols and the power of symbols and how they affect our minds, mm-hmm. as we're just taking them in in the course of our day. And then in the, in the form of the clipboard, in the form of the coffee cup, we are talking about symbols that we actually take into our hand and, in a sense, make a part of our body. Yeah. And therefore, we, uh, we we wrap ourselves in the trappings of the symbol. It's true, right? Yeah, this is what we we're saying all the other sort of trappings that we put uh, around us, that we hold, that we imbue with some sort of value, that gets uh, taken up into our brains and, and it informs the way that we actually cogitate. Uh, so it's pretty cool stuff. Now, we should probably take a break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about this idea of paper dolls. We're back, and uh, we're about to get into enclosed cognition. You know, when I was telling Holly Fry of History Stuff, what we were doing today, mm-hmm. she just went, oh, yeah, of course. RuPaul has a thing on that. RuPaul has a thing on that. RuPaul is her spirit animal, by the way. Oh. Uh. Yeah, or her spirit guide. I shouldn't say animal. Her spirit guide. And uh, she said that he says everybody is born naked and everything else is drag. Well, you know, modern cultural sociologists describe the human body as an unfinished body, a body created by nature but finished by humans. And so each of us calls up on uh, various bodies, various uh, various times throughout our lives. It's kind of like the idea of the cyborg, you know, where we're all cyborgs because we're all using technology, we're wearing it or it's in our body or it's some part of us. And clothing is a part of us as well. The, the, the human body is born unfinished. We finish it with our clothing and technology, and that is the version of ourselves that we see. Well, and that's that idea of this, the paper dolls that we just kind of put on these different outfits, and then we perform whatever aspects of it that we are subconsciously or consciously uh, thinking about in terms of how we move around in the world. Well, it's like a Barbie doll, right? I mean, like there, there's the naked Barbie doll that is just like flung around in a bathtub, mm-hmm. but then there are the outfits that transform Barbie and all of these other... Uh, people astronaut barbie yeah wasn't there just barbie. a wasn't there a mars curiosity uh rover barbie something that recently came <laughs> out but you know what she still looks just, like barbie i have to say and we've talked about her weird dimensions and this is why oh, yes. right because she would topple over if you actually fully formed barbie with her her current dimensions would she topple over on mars though 
Good question. That's a question for another That's day. A very good question. All right. So um, the best example of enclosed cognition, because there, there are not many examples, by the way. Um, this is, again, a fairly new field of study. Studied examples. I mean, we can sit here and sort of rattle out. Anecdotally, yeah. all day long. Um, but I wanted to point out three studies by Adam D. Galinsky. He is a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And he presented his information in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology in 2012. Um, they also, yeah, they to- coined the term in clothed cognition. They did. And by the way, Galinsky got the idea for this from watching The Simpsons, the TV show. Really? Max Power? No, no, no. Um, well, I don't know which episode title it was, but basically he was watching kids, uh, all the kids at school, and they were outside, and they were made to wear these gray uniforms. And they were very subdued and calm. And then it began to rain, and all of the dye came off the uniforms, and these rainbow colors emerged from their clothes, and the kids went berserk. Huh. And he said, he said, I started thinking about the clothes you wear and the meaning behind those clothes. If you put on a black T-shirt, you become more aggressive. You put on a nurse's uniform, you become more helpful. And then he crafted these three studies having to do with a lab coat. Huh. Well, again, it comes down to the idea that, that, uh, that all of these things have symbolic meaning. Mm-hmm. And the lab coat carries a lot of symbolic meaning. You look at someone in a lab coat. Maybe holding a clipboard or some sort of medical <laughs> instrument as well. Yeah. There may be other symbols that are combining to create this kind of hyper sickle. But, uh, but there's the idea that this is a person who's highly educated. Mm-hmm. This is a person that um, I should trust mm-hmm. on some level. Careful. That is careful. Attentive. Attentive. That is clean. We've discussed that one before, though. That, that There's kind of ups and downs on that one. Right. That's clean and that is go- it is going to potentially save me. Yes, and this is is all embodied in this lab coat, which Galinsky and the researchers used in these three studies. Now, what Galinsky also wanted to to really hone in on is this idea of our attention and how we direct it, because Mm -hmm. as we have talked about before, directed attention is a scarce and finite mental resource, Um, and we have talked about it in the context of ego depletion and different ways of trying to game that attention span that we have. So... Uh, what they did is they, they, in one of the studies, they used something called a Stroop test. Now, this is how they ferret out people's ability to perform on a concentration task while assuming or subconsciously assuming these identities, mm-hmm. in this case, the lab coat. So if you look at a Stroop task, it's fairly easy, straightforward, because it's a very visual task. Uh, you're asked to identify, or I should say it's very easy and straightforward to understand what you're being asked to do, but it's not easy to do for your mind. Um, You're asked to identify the color of the word represented in front of you on a screen. The problem is that the word says red, but the letters that spell it out are blue. Ah. And your brain goes, what? So what your brain has to then do is suss out the meaning versus the visual representation, and as a result, there's a fairly high error rate here. So it's a great way of trying to gauge someone's engagement or attention span. Huh. Well, you know, this test reminds me of the uh, the awesome Internet video, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. It's sort of like a children's show, and they're singing about creativity, and then it gets a little dark, and they agree never to be creative again. But there's the part <laughs> where they're talking about, well, how do you how do you engage creativity? How do you act creative, creatively? And uh, how do you think creatively? And uh, the, the, the lead character of the singing... Uh, little notebook says uh, one thing that you can do is you can uh, get a collection of sticks and leaves and spell out your favorite color which is in a sense you're using you're using ground brown using green to spell out something like red yes i believe they do this to children 
Yeah. Yeah, the Stroop test with that exact video. Huh. And then they get to the part where the void just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> takes them all down. Well, but and children a, start crying. It is interesting. The one character spells green with the green and brown sticks and all, and uh, and that is ruled not a creative color. And in a sense, <laughs> it isn't a creative color because it's playing right into the dictation of the test. So maybe there's more to that part of the video than I gave it uh, credit previously. It's possible. It's possible. But it's a great example of how your mind is having to try to make sense yes. of the visual representation as opposed to the word representation. Right. And I really do think they should do that with five-year-olds <laughs> and then watch their brains melt. Um I did want to point out, though, that this was this was the uh, centerpiece of the first experiment in which 58 undergraduates were randomly assigned to wear a white lab coat or street clothes. And those who wore the white lab coats made about half as many errors on incongruent trials as those who wore regular clothes on the Stroop test. That's pretty impressive, right? Yeah. I mean, half as many just by wearing the coat. In the second experiment, 74 students were randomly assigned to one of three options, wearing a doctor's coat, wearing a painter's coat, which, by the way, was the same coat yeah. as the doctor's coat. They <laughs> just called it call a painter's coat. Yeah. Or seeing a doctor's coat. And then they were giving, uh, given a test for sustained attention. And they had to look at two very similar pictures side by side on a screen and spot four minor differences, writing them down as quickly as possible. So those who wore the doctor's coat, um, they found more differences than those who were wearing the same coat that was called the painter's coat or those who were just wearing street clothes. Now, the third experiment had students either wear the doctor's coat or the painter's coat, and they were told to notice a doctor's lab coat displayed on the desk in front of them for, for a long period of time. And all three groups had to write essays about their thoughts on the coats, and then they were tested, again, for attention, and it turns out this group that wore the doctor's coat, they showed the greatest improvement in attention. So what does this mean? It means that they were embodying this cognition of what it is to be a doctor and these ideals of being attentive, of being well-educated, of being on point. Yeah, you put, you step into the symbol. You take it on yourself, and you 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 then appear as that symbol, and then you are thinking as that symbol as well. You're taking on the guise of the doctor, even if you're not actually thinking, hey, I'm wearing a doctor's coat now. I bet I can go in there and perform surgery. Well, and this is what is interesting about this study, is that it begins to, to question, like, what other aspects of our culture are bringing up these ideas and having us fall in line? So you think about police uniforms or yeah. inmate uniforms. Yeah, the inmate uniform sends the signal that you are just like everyone else. You are just a number. And also, you're going to stand out if you if you go out, if you escape from here. You're stripped of your identity, yeah. right? Like, not only are you taking them from from the rights that you had as someone out in the outside world, mm-hmm. who could cook what you, whatever you wanted for breakfast, go wherever you wanted. Now you're on the inside, and you can't even express yourself as an individual. Uh, someone who is a police officer, you know, he or she has these these colors, these darker, very serious colors. Yeah, that like the are, gleaming badge. And all, yeah. yeah, the gleaming badge meant to enforce this idea of uh, you know security and order. And then there are nuns. Yes. How do you explain nuns? Well, in what sense? In, in <laughs> sense of the, the uniform? I mean, in the, yeah. the habit? Well, you, you do get a sense of... Uh, you know, of darkness and, and light, a very, very somber outfit that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, you know, masking a lot of the body and, uh, and you know, creating this sort of penguin-like uh, 
uh, demeanor. And they're veiled. They yeah. are brides of Jesus, right? Exactly. Well, brides the, of Christ. Yeah. yeah, brides of Christ. So, um, again, all this stuff going on to sort of, you know, operate as these underpinnings of how we perceive the world and how we move around in it. Um, I feel like all of these symbols, though, there's there's also a counter uh, interpretation of the symbol. Like the cop's uniform, for many people, becomes a symbol of tyranny and abuse of power. The symbol of the doctor can also become a symbol of bad news, a symbol of, uh, of being taken advantage of, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, or, or certainly a symbol of, um, of of privilege too. And, and privileged power. Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of Dr. Leo Spaceman. Oh, yes. Spajaman? Dr. Leo Spajaman? Spajaman. Yeah. From 30 Rock, who is the, the ridiculous doctor who shouldn't at all be a doctor, <laughs> and but he's wearing the coat at all yes. times, and then he's spewing mo- nonsense, and everybody just sort of goes, oh, okay, yeah, thank you, doctor. Yeah, because he looks like a doctor, and he's, 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 he has a nice speaking voice, even though everything he's saying is complete garbage. Complete garbage. Yeah. And that, I think that they're making some sort of comment on that, like just put a, you know, a doctor's uh, lab coat on someone, and immediately they have authority on all things. Now, a more uh, relatable thing that I think we can all uh, point to in our own life. Like, wh- what do you feel like when you dress up fancy? Do you ever fancy yourself up? Awkward. Oh. Like, <laughs> heels are, are the devil's stilts. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. Now, do you, but do you ever not, you're not wearing the heels, but do you ever feel like, do you ever dress fancy and feel fancy in any way? Like, is there ever a positive connotation to that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just don't dress fancy that often. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable in my skin. So if I decide to put something fancy on, it's fine. But it's not. So I don't go around, like, uh, pretending like I've got a really long, like, cigarette holder or anything. Okay. Well, how about this? Um, what do you wear when you go to yoga? Do you have a special, um, special garment that you wear just for yoga? A long velvet dress. No, <laughs> No, but seriously, you, my Stevie Nicks dress. You, you, but you do have like yoga pants or something. Yes. Okay. So when you wear the yoga pants, mm-hmm. uh, even before you go to yoga, or if you're wearing them when you're not going to yoga, do you find yourself sort of entering the mindset of one who goes to yoga? Uh, I feel stretchy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I feel flexible. I'm more open to people. Do you, you, no, I don't know. Okay. I might be. Well, because I, I kind of feel that way. I feel you like do. if I'm if I'm wearing yoga pants. Even if I'm not going to yoga, I do feel a little more relaxed. I think it, it wears off of me. You know, um, I always remember my dad coming home from work and coming home from his, like, very serious suit. I mean, we're talking about a vest with his suit mm-hmm. and suspenders, all the accoutrements of business life. And shedding that as soon as he came home, taking a shower and then coming out in, in all of his, like, you know, cotton um, leisure wear, I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because it was that transformation from day to evening. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there is a bit of that role-playing going on. Yeah. Cool. Well, like, like I say, we could sit here and rattle off possible examples of this all all, all day long mm-hmm. about how we wear something different. Mm-hmm. makes us, Like what happens when you wear uh, you know, ceremonial um, you know, dark robes with pentagrams on them? You feel a little more uh, in touch with uh, occult phenomena and, uh, and, and the secrets and mysteries of life. It may be. I'm going to have to try that out yeah. and see. Well, think about the next time you, you dress up for an occult ritual. Well, I wanted to uh, just swing this little ditty by everybody. This is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy about embodied cognition. It says, quote, the genuine insight about the nature of consciousness that embodied cognitive science has generated is that the character of visual experience results from the way we are dynamically hooked up to the world. 
sensoromotor coupling with the environment is crucial in providing the organism with the proprioceptive kinesthetic feedback necessary for the senses of ownership and movement. When we touch an object, for example, we do not exclusively have experience of it, but while touching and being touched, we experience ourselves moving, including the feeling of controlling our own body in action. The account of that agency, the sense of controlling one's body, originates in processes that evolve for interaction with the environment, that is, mechanisms for sensory processing and motor control, suggests that embodied experience underpins self-awareness. And I thought about that in the context of the lab coat. Mm -hmm. If you feel the texture and the weight of that clothing, that you begin to to transform it into your actual motor skills, your cognitive skills, Mm -hmm. and truly embody it. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it, it, it just comes down to this fact that we are, that clothing are, the, clo- the clothing makes the man, the cl- as they say, you know? Yeah. The clothing is a part of who we are and how we interface with the world. Uh, now, one quick example we forgot to mention is, is Halloween. If you're dressing yes. up for Halloween, to what extent do we end up taking on the, um, the, the mental image of the thing that we are dressing up as? Like, what were you for Halloween most recently? I really don't like to dress up for Halloween, but and I think it's because mo- most of my costumes have been a failure. But last time it was a '50s housewife with a, like a fake turkey and barbiturates. Oh, well, that's that was good. strapped to me. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, you? Well, at some point recently, I dressed up as a as a cop because uh, this was several years ago. But um, and my wife and I dressed up as the main characters from Raising Arizona. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but. Um, I'm glad no, no, that no, was no, con- no, she was a cop. Sorry, she was a cop, and I was a, a bank robber with a panty on my head, you know, stocking. You know. Okay. So, uh, so I guess you know when I dressed up as that character, I kind of had to feel a little bit like that character. So I felt good natured and maybe a little goofy and suffocated. Yeah, and suffocated and prone to uh, you know robbing liquor stores and a new appreciation for pantyhose and, yeah. and the trials and tribulations of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, some uh, some food for thought as we move into this fall season, and we encounter Halloween pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. Keep all this in mind uh, as you dress up for costume parties, as you dress up for your daily life, because uh, we'd love to hear hear about you. Is there a uniform that you have to wear, be it an official uniform or sort of an unofficial uniform? Because, uh, like, I remember when I was working in newspapers, the unofficial uniform I had to wear was this like awful khaki pants. Like the the kind that balloon up in the crotch whenever you sit down, mm-hmm. those are awful. And uh, but it was it became a part of how I felt about myself while I was working there. So so what kind of uniform do you wear? What kind of uniform are you forced to wear? And then what kind of uh, clothing do you wear uh, to change the way you feel about yourself? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can find us at uh, all the normal places. Go to our main website. That's the best place. StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Everything else uh, streams off from there. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. But StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that's the mothership. Yeah, and you can find our videos on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, too. So check those out. And make sure to drop us a line. You can do that at BelowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.